Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Stuart Russell will join us to discuss human-compatible. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. and artificial intelligence continues to spread throughout the world, raising concerns about how it could escape our control. Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Stuart Russell. Dr. Russell is a professor of computer science and the holder of the Smith Sedate Chair in Engineering at the University of California, Berkeley. He has served as the Vice Chair of the World Economic Forum's Council on AI and Robotics and is an advisor to the United Nations on Arms Control. He has written in numerous scientific and popular works on the subject, and he is the author, along with Peter Norvig, of the definitive and universally acclaimed textbook on AI, Artificial Intelligence, A Modern Approach. He has penned the new book, Human Compatible, Artificial Intelligence and the Problem of Control, and he joins us today to discuss this issue. And Dr. Russell, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Nice to be with you. Well, how are we going to deal with AI? So I've been working in the field now for uh, getting on for 40 years, and progress has been, for most of that time, slow and steady, but it's, it's definitely accelerating right now. And a question that I've been asking for uh, at least 25 years since I first wrote uh, the textbook is, what if we succeed? Our goal, our long-term goal as a field is to create machine intelligence that's on a par with or exceeds human intelligence. And the question is, what if we succeed in doing that? And over those years, I've gradually become convinced that unless we have an answer to this question, we could face very serious, possibly even terminal consequences. Because put very simply, intelligence is power. It's what gives us power over the world, over all the other species. If you make something that's more intelligent than you are, how do you expect to retain power over it? And there are no precedents for that uh, in the natural world. The, The species that are less intelligent generally end up succumbing to those that are more intelligent. And that's certainly the case with many, many species that the humans have put out of business. So, As I thought about this problem, uh, it became clear to me that it was actually a consequence of the way we were thinking about AI. So the book is, if you like, has two parts. The first part is, what is AI? How do we, how have we traditionally thought about it? And why does that cause a problem? And then the second part is, how could you think about it differently? How could you have a different kind of AI system that doesn't cause this problem? And the problem that is now becoming very apparent is that when you build machines according to the standard model, which is machines that are very good at achieving a fixed objective that we provide, that model can cause an arbitrary amount of collateral damage if the objective is the wrong one. So this this is not a new story. The legend of King Midas lays it out pretty clearly. He stated his objective I want everything I touch to turn to gold. He got exactly what he asked for. And then, of course, his food and his drink and his family all turn to gold, and he dies in misery and starvation. And 
Same with the genie in the lamp. You know, if you're lucky, you get three wishes. And the third wish is always, please undo the first two wishes because I've ruined everything. And this is really an unavoidable problem. It's okay in the lab. It's okay with, with simple machines that aren't very bright because, you know, you can reset them. You can then fix the objective and try again until you get it right. And then the machine behaves the way you hope. And that's great. But in the real world, for example, with social media algorithms that choose what news article you watch or what YouTube video that comes up next. Those algorithms are designed with a fixed objective, as is standard in AI. And in this case, the fixed objective is to monetize you, the user, to, to try to get you to click on stuff uh, so that the social media platform makes money. And in the pursuit of that objective, those algorithms have, have turned, apparently, tens of millions of people into far more extreme versions of their original selves that they might not even recognize. And it, they've done that by, by feeding them sequences of content that manipulate their preferences, their opinions, their perceptions of the world until they reach a point where the machine can predict their click-through behavior much more reliably because they, they gobble up this kind of content. And this is an all entirely accidental. I don't think the social media platforms wanted to disrupt uh, democracy on a world scale. But this is collateral damage from putting uh, even relatively unintelligent machine learning algorithms out there on a mass scale, interacting with billions of people with the wrong objective. And so the, the story uh, of the first half of the book is that this is how we build AI systems. We put fixed objectives into them. But when you do that, and looking ahead, with much more powerful systems, uh, it could be much worse. When you do that, you lose control because you have a machine that's pursuing an objective that turns out to be in conflict with your true objectives. And that's sort of like having a chess match. And we know what happens when you try to play chess against superior computer programs. You just lose. So, I mean, if this is indeed uh, the problem, I mean, the standard models you say is, is flawed, how do we correct it? So what we have to do is to get rid of this idea that we plug the objective into the machine. We do have objectives. We, we more generally speaking, think of these as preferences about how the future should unfold. There are some futures that we'd be happy with and some futures we'd be very unhappy with and some that are in between. So this is what we care about, our preferences. And the machine, it should be designed so that that is its only guiding principle, that it wants to help us achieve the future that we prefer. But, and here's the key point, the machine knows that it doesn't know exactly what our preferences are. And it's this uncertainty, this lack of knowledge, if you like, this humility, which turns out to be our safety margin. Because when the machine knows that it doesn't know what we want, then rather than take an action that could have extremely bad consequences for us because it messes up with some part of the world that we really care about, like it, you know, it turns the oceans into sulfuric acid or turns the sky, you know, gray with, with yellow stripes or does something else that, that uh, you know, perhaps even wipes out the human race, things that would make us extremely unhappy. Uh, before messing with any, any of that, if it knows that it doesn't know if that would make us unhappy or not, it has an incentive to find out, to ask us, is it okay if I turn the ocean into sulfuric acid? You know, perhaps in the pursuit of some desirable consequence, like putting carbon dioxide back into balance, but you can't put carbon dioxide back in the balance without messing with other parts of the world. 
and it should be asking us, is it okay to mess with those parts? And when you build machines this way, that difference, that asking for permission, that being unwilling to, to just go ahead and plunge in and mess with the world, uh, that all comes out automatically from the way the algorithms solve this problem. The problem being, how, to, how can you be of benefit to humans when you don't know exactly what benefit means? And the answer is, you are cautious, you ask permission, you defer, you learn more about human preferences by observing the choices that we make. And this is a completely different approach to the design of AI systems. And I'm not really sure. So, so some people ask, well, why didn't we think of this 60 years ago? Uh, and I can't answer that question. I don't know why, except for the fact that what we did was just to copy the idea of human intelligence, where, of course, since we have our objectives ourselves, we act to try to achieve them. We just copied that notion and put it in machines. Uh, and, but it was actually, turns out, the wrong notion. Uh, we don't want machines that are intelligent in that sense. We want machines that are beneficial to us. Uh, and so that's the second half of the book, proposing how to do that and then looking at all of the technical challenges and, and in some sense, philosophical challenges involved in that process. Isn't one of the challenges if you have an individual who has very unhumanistic goals? Yeah, yeah. Um, so that, that's definitely a concern. So uh, one thing to note is that probably wouldn't want to have AI systems that were concerned about the preferences of just one person. Because even if, even if that person might be reasonably nice, you know, that person generally prefers to have more money in their bank account than less money. I think that's pretty common. So if the machine doesn't care about anyone else at all, just that person, then one thing it would do on behalf of that person would be to imperceptibly, undetectably steal money from everyone else's bank account uh, to put it into the bank account of the, the, uh, the, the master, the principal. So clearly you don't want that to happen. And in fact, the way you design systems, they ought to take into consideration the preferences not just of the, the one user, but in fact of everybody else. And this is where you get into the philosophical questions, because this is something that philosophers and, and political thinkers have, have struggled with for, for centuries. How do you act in ways that, that trade off appropriately the interests of many people who can't all simultaneously be satisfied, right? Simply put, if you all want to be ruler of the universe, well, we can't all be ruler of the universe, and what does the machine do then? So there have been answers. Philosophers going back even to like the 5th century BC in China have proposed this idea that, roughly speaking, you, know, you treat everybody equally, you give equal weight to everyone's preferences, and then you try to act accordingly. That's, I think, basically right, but there's a few things you have to worry about. So as you mentioned, the person who's a sadist, meaning that they actually prefer the suffering of others. So not just that they're selfish, but they actively gain their, they get their jollies from the suffering of other people. There's no way you want machines to try to satisfy that preference. In fact, it shouldn't weigh into the overall decision at all. So you want to somehow zero out these sort of negatively altruistic or, or sadistic preferences. Uh, that's one, one of the philosophical points that people have, uh, have thought about, actually, for a long time. Um, but there are other really difficult questions. For example, is it better to have uh, a small number of very happy people or a large number of somewhat happy people? And this is a real question. You know, this is a question that the Chinese government faced, and they made a decision with their one-child policy that they were better off having a smaller number of happier people than a larger number 
less happy or even starving people. So any AI system whose decisions could, in the long run, affect the number of people who exist, we need to solve that problem. We need to figure out what is the appropriate way to think about the, the possibility of, of having different numbers of people in the future. Just how far are we now in terms of our design of AI machines? So at the moment, I would say that the, the standard model, the old, the old way of doing it that I'm saying is wrong, where you build in a fixed objective, that is the standard way of doing it. And pretty much every deployed AI system works that way. Uh, and as I mentioned with social media, we are already seeing some of the negative consequences. What I'm trying to do with this book is to actually get people to think about this, this other approach, to understand why the way we've been doing things is wrong, how to do it differently. But I would say at the moment, there's a huge amount of work for us to do to develop sort of equivalent technologies to all of the existing technologies, but versions of, the, of those technologies that are actually safe, that we can prove will be of benefit to human beings. And so one of the things that I've done in, in the past is to write a textbook about artificial intelligence. And, you know, it has 20-odd chapters. And each of those chapters is based on the assumption that the objective is fixed. So I'm, I'm part of the problem in that sense. What we effectively have to do is to come up with all the research that enables me to rewrite those chapters one by one with the appropriate technological solutions for how you build this new kind of AI system. So we've done preliminary work. We've shown in simple cases that, yeah, it does, it does in fact do what you want. It, it asks permission, it defers, it allows itself to be switched off. All of those things fall out naturally as a consequence of setting the problem up the right way. But we don't yet have, you know, all of the scaled up technologies that you would want to use if you're, you know, operating a social media platform, for example. So there's, there's still a lot to do. In the meantime, we can recommend some very straightforward steps to take to avoid some of the, the worst consequences. And in particular, when you design and deploy an algorithm, first of all, think about the objective that you're specifying for it, you know, and is monetization the only thing you should care about? And think about what other effects can it have on the world besides generating money or, or whatever it is that you have in the explicit objective. So what are the side effects? What are the collateral damage? Economists call this externalities. And usually what they recommend in the case of externalities, such as polluting the atmosphere, is that you charge people either by taxes or fines so that uh, eventually the offender take, starts to take into account the negative effects on other people. Um, but in the area of AI, you know, how much should we charge Facebook for turning millions of people into neo-fascists? I don't know. It's very hard, it's very hard to say what, what the fine should be or how much, you know, what tax rate there should be for that kind of behavior. So instead, what you should do is to say, okay, this is a potential side effect of operating the algorithm this way. Can I redesign the algorithm so that it doesn't have that side effect? And it turns out, in fact, yes, you can. You can write algorithms that adapt to people's preferences for material, the content, without modifying those preferences, the content, or at least not modifying them in this, in this way that drives people into the extremes of the spectrum. You know, the field of AI is starting to understand this, and the way forward, actually, is to have tens of thousands of people working to develop the new approach to, to the AI technology. What are the areas you think that humans, for the next generation, that will have to live in a society environment as AI machines that are doing types of jobs? Uh, yes, it's a really good question. Uh, a, a lot of 
parents ask me that question. I'm a parent. I have I have four kids between uh, the age of 13 and 21, so it's very uh, very pertinent. What should you study in college? How should you prepare yourself? And it, I think it's quite likely that that over the long run, anything that's routine, whether it's mental or physical labor, is going to be done more cheaply by machines and, and possibly better. And that accounts for actually the vast majority of jobs in the world today. And arguably, you could say those jobs are actually kind of robotic. We use humans as robots to perform these repetitive tasks. It's not necessarily such uh, an enjoyable way to spend time. It doesn't engage many of your human capacities. So the likely outcome in the long run is that what people will be doing is, is jobs that involve person-to-person interaction, where we have this innate competitive advantage over machines that we are so similar to each other that we can experience what another person is experiencing and understand what it's like. Sometimes we use the word empathize, but it's more general than that. It's not just common suffering, which is what empathy means. It's also common enjoyment. We know what it's like when something really great happens or when you have a beautiful rose in your garden or when you get a letter from someone you haven't heard from in a long time. We know what that's like because we can experience it in more or less, we assume, the same way that other humans experience it. Machines simply don't have that opportunity. So they might study neuroscience. uh, They might try to build mathematical models to predict how we're going to respond externally to these events, but they will never know what it's like to hit your thumb with a hammer or to fall in love. And so we have the advantage there. And I think in the long run, those will be the professions in which humans are engaged. And that's a very desirable future because this is what humans really like. They really like to be engaged with each other. They don't like to be sitting in a factory pushing a button 10,000 times a day. Well, we were just talking with Professor Stuart Russell. He is the author of the new book, Human Compatible, Artificial Intelligence and the Problem of Control. And Dr. Russell, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.